Today, we bring you a provocative chat with Fleur Hassan Naum, born and raised in Gibraltar, daughter of the small country's prime minister, no less, and a longtime resident of Jerusalem and proud member of the Likud party. Fleur was brave enough and keen to discuss with the state of Tel Aviv and beyond the controversy surrounding the judicial reform proposals that have caused unprecedented civil unrest in Israel for the last 13 weeks. This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Fleur Hassan Nahum is a dynamo, a wife, mother of four teenagers slash young adults, a deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Likud party member, and deeply involved in developing people-to-people ties between Israel and the Gulf states. She is also very articulate, and in the current environment in Israel, which is charged, to say the least, open and amenable to having a discussion with the state of Tel Aviv about this very challenging period. The fault lines among Israelis are many and deep. Either we find a way to communicate and resolve, or the future will be very bleak indeed. State of Tel Aviv and beyond has approached two organizations in recent weeks for interviews, both of which are strong supporters of the judicial reforms. The Kohelet Policy Forum did not respond at all to two written requests for interviews. The NGO Im Tirtzu was enthusiastic initially, but then went dark and stopped responding as well. So much for dialogue. In my view, it is a civic responsibility to engage. To ignore speaks volumes as to how the Kohelet Forum in particular, as a key advisor to the government, would manage dissent. But Fleur Hassan Nahum is not cut from the same cloth. She is a breath of fresh air, anomalous in so many ways, including her candor when discussing some very sticky issues. She addressed the tough stuff with poise and fire. I expect you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did and learn a fair bit too, as did I. We have put together a brief background explainer to accompany this podcast, in which we get into greater detail with respect to what the judicial reform proposals actually address. We thought it best to do it in that way and avoid messing up the flow of this podcast, as well as future episodes. Episode 7a, Background Information Regarding the Israeli Judicial Reform Legislation. You can find it on our site stateoftelaviv.com. Now back to Fleur Hassan. Okay, Fleur Hassan, so lovely to sit and have a chance to talk to you about all the exciting things that are going on in Israel these days. It's always exciting in this country. It's not one thing, it's another. Fleur and I got down to business and skipped the small talk. We did that later, actually, over lunch. I'm a proud member of the Likud party. All right. Well, let's go because I'm a 
proud anarchist these days. Oh, no, no, oh, no dear. Vivian, no. Yes. That's we love point. you. Oh, thank you. You're, you're part of us, and uh, yeah. Well, let's get, let's get down to it. Let's... The country's in turmoil. Yeah. And you're a Likud member. Yeah. Do you support the judicial reforms in the manner in which they're being presented to the public? So you've kind of given me a, an answer before, you know, with a question. I support judicial reforms. I'm a lawyer. I understand there is a judiciary here that has become increasingly overactive over the last 30 years. I understand also that there's never really been a law that defines the power of the judiciary, and therefore the judiciary has defined its own power, which is pretty rare for a well-functioning democracy. And it doesn't bother me for the most part, except when they get involved in administrative decisions that they really have no business getting involved in and have really nothing to do with judicial review, which is really the main check that the judiciary should be doing on the, on the legislature. Now, do I believe in an independent Supreme Court and judiciary? Absolutely. I think most people in my party do, if not all. We need an independent judiciary in order to have a well-functioning democracy. Do we need a judiciary that is over, it, which is becoming more important than a democratically elected Knesset? No. And I think this is what these reforms are trying to correct and restore. I don't think anyone would disagree, myself included, that the Supreme Court of Israel has become, over the last 30 or so years, overly activist. Yeah. Right? We need to recalibrate the balance between yes. the democratically elected Knesset yes. and the unelected Supreme Court. Yes. And you think that, or you take the position that these reforms would actually accomplish that? I think that for the most part, yes. I think that in general, I'm a person of consensus. So I believe we could have rolled it out better, 100%. Maybe the timing also wasn't correct. There's many things that you could look back and say should have maybe... May, I actually don't think that they thought the backlash would be so strong. I, I, I agree with that. I think that the government, the coalition government, absolutely and totally underestimated yes. uh, the resolve and the, where the red lines were with the general public. I also don't think we should underestimate the different interests that are also pushing forward these, these protests. Fleur speaks quite a bit throughout our chat about various groups that she sees as being prominent in the anti-reform protest movement. She refers, for example, to the crime minister's movement. I see this particular group and quite a few others as more fringe and extreme than the mainstream protesters. Nevertheless, this issue comes up and I wanted to be sure that our listeners have context. As we return now to our discussion with Fleur, she is making a strong pitch for what she sees as being the arbitrariness of how the court operates and its opaqueness. Well, first of all, you have to understand the way that it is today. There is absolutely no rules or regulations on how many people sit per case, apart from a minimum, and who sits. In other words, and this is how it works. It's completely either random. It's the Wild West. It's the Wild West. Esther Hayud says, oh, we're having a case about something to do with religion and state. You, Supreme Court Justice with a keeper, better sit this one out. You 
can't have this type of arbitrary, you know, decisions. I think that the whole process of putting this through the Knesset was to deliberate, to negotiate. But what for weeks has been going on is the opposition saying, we're not going to talk as long as it's on the table. But this is exactly the time to talk. You know, the, the time between the first reading, the second reading, the third reading is supposed to be the time for negotiation, for softening. Even Netanyahu said from the beginning, things will look different, things will soften up. He said that to Blinken three months ago. He said a lot of things to Blinken. But the point is, you can't leave the room, say, no, 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 no. We're not even going to discuss it. Like, it's just this cancel culture. We're not going to discuss it. Here, too, I see things differently from Fleur. Within a day or two of the coalition government finalizing its agreements, Minister of Justice Yuriv Levine announced that he had draft legislation in hand, ready to go, provided by the experts at the Kohelet Policy Forum. Minister Levine immediately advised the legislature that consideration of the bills would adhere to a very rigid timetable, with ultimate passage into law by the end of March latest. In light of the quite comprehensive and radical changes being proposed in the legislation, this sort of shock and awe approach to getting the legislation through the Knesset was ill-advised in the extreme. In a situation such as the one in Israel, a prudent approach would have been for the coalition government to engage in genuine consultation. That means with the opposition parties and with external stakeholders, civil society organizations, NGOs, the whole kit and caboodle. Instead, member of Knesset Simcha Rotman, the chair of the all-important Constitutional Law and Justice Committee of the Knesset, is leading the consultation process at committee, and it's been a certifiable mess. I've watched some of the proceedings online. It's a gong show. The government is bulldozing over every attempt to comment or have a reasonable discussion. Because come hell or high water, this government was determined to get this stuff done by March 31st. It is incomprehensible that legislation of this complexity and importance could be shoved through second reading as if it's an overtime shootout. By the time a bill goes to third reading in the House, I's are dotted and T's are crossed. If the government has a majority in the House, or Knesset in this case, obviously they can railroad the opposition. But they should make every, every effort to at least appear to respect the democratic process and they must do so regarding public participation. None of that has occurred in Israel with the legislation. Quite the opposite. Anyone who has dared to question the coalition government has been smeared for being an anarchist, leftist, traitor. The insults are hurled around indiscriminately, and it's become farcical at this point. Because every person of stature in this security, economy, business, cultural communities has taken uncompromisingly strong stands against this legislation and the process. Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us. Review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That's stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference. For real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. We are talking about, in effect, 
recalibrating whatever constitutional agreement we have in a country, of course, with no constitution. That's the best, is that we have constitutional crisis with no constitution. Yes. It's so Israeli it's and so Jewish. Jewish. I know. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you don't do the negotiating at the same time that your newly elected coalition government has pledged publicly that come hell or high water, they're going to ram this stuff through. You don't negotiate properly with a pistol to the head. You and I were speaking earlier. We both agree you need real public consultation. I agree. Okay. You can't do that. You cannot have proper public consultations, get feedback, revise proposals, do what needs to be done and what is done, and in my view, a properly functioning democracy. You can't do that if you're sitting there with a gun to the opposition's head and you've got a very aggressive schedule for the Knesset and you're saying, fine, we'll talk, but in the meantime, we're plowing through. That's not negotiation. And so for many people, what they see is the last vestiges of this elitist left-wing 1% power grabbing on for dear life. You know how inaccurate that is. And it's not. Well, it is. Because, because why, why have never, for the last 10 years, there have been many proposals just for tweaking this and tweaking that, and the, and the judiciary and the Supreme Court have never been introspective, and they have never given an inch, not an inch, this has become something much larger now. I agree with you, but you have to understand the background. I think I do understand the background, but I also understand that the way in which this coalition government proposed the legislation and has been stuffing it down the gullet of the nation is not the response. It's not good governance. It's not good democracy. Well, that's why you've got the prime minister who finally last week said, okay, putting a pause, this can't go on like this. Let's start talking negotiation teams. <laughs> what I find and in the next breath, he also said, listen, we're just pausing. And if we don't have work anything out, which wink, wink, we won't, we're going to jam it through on May 1st. You, you may or may not think of the judiciary and that there's this, you know, 0.001% preserving their privilege. This has become the catalyst for a much larger movement. Yes, but let's unpack the movement All right, because that's... I really have a lot of really, really good friends who go out and protest every week because they're genuinely concerned. I do. But then, let's not forget, you've got the crime minister movement who have not stopped protesting right. for the last three years, except for the one year that Bibi wasn't the prime minister. They are certainly over there. You've got all the anti-occupation movement who are jumping onto the bandwagon You've got a lot of other movements who are like, great, let's go on to this because we want to get rid of Bibi. You've got the, the, the movements of the, of the, who can't really accept the result of the election. And so you've got a lot of movements converging into one movement, along with very decent people that are really concerned. I'm not saying they're not I there. think that the majority are very concerned. And I think it's interesting that two of the drivers of the protest, really that kind of mobilized the public initially, uh, brothers in arms, elite combat reserve soldiers with whom I've met many times, and of course, combat pilots. But and I... what's interesting, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is that in his remarks to the nation that were, I guess, meant to assuage the people and tell the nation, hey, look, I've got a handle on this, we're going to calm down, we're going to pause and reflect, but he continued to vilify the pilots. Listen, Vivian, I think that there, there's been one very concerning phenomenon here, and that is 
the way that the army's gotten involved in politics. And this is going to... Is this the army or are these individuals? They're individuals who are bringing the nation to a very dangerous place because... Because they're desperate. No, because in two years, let's say this switches over and we have a left-wing government and they go and decide to get rid of one of the settlements in northern Samaria and then what? What gates of hell have you opened up now when you're going to have people on the right wing saying, well, we're also not going to starve. They've opened the gates of hell and they should never have done that. You keep the army out of politics. That is the golden rule. And as individuals, do what you want. But when you go and you bring the army into it and you say, we're not going to go and show up to reserve duty, you have opened the gates of hell and they will regret having opened those gates because it could work on the other side and then we're all in big, big trouble. We're already in big trouble because of this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest an alternate scenario that these reservist pilots and elite combat soldiers were desperate. They felt that these reforms are going to be jammed through. They are going to result in a very extreme right-wing government controlled by people like Yariv Levine, Itamar Ben-Gvir, Betzalel Smotrich, and the Haredim. And this is not going to be a democratic Knesset. A when you hear them is, speak, when you hear them speak, and I've heard some of them speak on the radio, yeah. they, they, they're saying ludicrous things like, if we don't do this now, these are the last elections. Give me a break. Vivian, do you really believe these are the last elections? If these reforms go through, be honest. And this is what they're saying, as if it's about to happen. That's ludicrous. That's an exaggeration. That is panicking the nation. And shame on them for bringing the army into the politics because this is going to work. The other side could also do the same thing. And this is very concerning. They should never have gone there. I'm very sorry. They should never have gone there. Yeah, I think that I I don't see it the way you do. I agree that the army shouldn't be politicized. I think that to have avoided this crisis, Netanyahu should have and could have paid attention and listened to very highly regarded security personnel, both in office now and previously, from the Mossad, from the Shin Bet, from the IDF, from all sectors of the security infrastructure in this country who have been telling him for months, do not do this in this way because you will be putting the country in a very serious predicament. And what did he say? He didn't pay attention to them. So I'm not sure that I would put all of the onus or responsibility or blame, if I can use that word, on the resistors. I think that the way they're looking at it is we put our lives on the line every year, many of them well into their 50s when they're no longer required to by law. And we are concerned that this will seriously undermine democracy. I views that I've heard, it's honestly, we are about to oversee a new dictatorship. I find the hyperbole around this whole thing to be completely exaggerated. This is where I just do not follow. The list of super prominent and expert individuals from the business world, economics, security, law, all sectors of society is beyond impressive. Most are not at all political or partisan, but they are screaming from the rooftops that we are headed for apocalyptic disaster by any measure. 
This is not exactly a crowd of lightweights either. Yet the government just barrels ahead. I'm thoroughly and genuinely confounded. I do not understand how such a chorus is disregarded. And from what I can see, in light of the government's intransigence, that is exactly what has happened. State of Tel Aviv is supported by people like you. But creating quality independent content requires resources. And I'd really appreciate it if you would support our work by becoming a paid subscriber. This is a particularly intense and important time in Israel. We will bring you real stories in real time that are shaping the nation. Thanks, and now back to the podcast. Look, I think I think it's it's very interesting. This I mean this the Jewish people have always been conflicted, divided. This is is not new, you know, and I think people forget, people have short memories and they forget that we've had many internal crises through the ages, but also even before the beginning of the state of Israel. It's not new. And so I think we definitely need a healing process going on here. But what I, and, I, and I'm honestly, I'm a very moderate Likudnik, and I think that many other Likudnikim are like me, really. But I, I also think that there is a little bit of a cancel culture on the other side that has burst into these flames. You know, the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu has for years been the guy that people want as their prime minister, and yet we won't sit with him, we won't sit with him. Where he's under indictment, we won't sit with him. Sorry, wasn't, didn't Clinton survive an impeachment? We, this is not the first time that we have these types of situation, and yet this canceling of Netanyahu, this delegitimizing him as a leader, is part of this anger going on on the right that causes the situation that we're seeing and I find that the fact that I can't even have a conversation, we're having a conversation, but I find that the fact that I can't even have a conversation with the people on the other side about any reforms, right. we're talking and we're agreeing with this, but there's an extreme side that are saying, if the whole thing is not scrapped, we are not, we're going to continue I, rioting. And we don't, what I don't agree with you on, though, is that the extremists are driving the discussion. I'm meeting with the people who are organizing and who are participating, and I don't think they're the extremists. I see them in all the marches. But, but are not... they saying that if this whole thing is not scratched, <clears throat> we're not stopping? Because I've heard that. And I don't think that the response, certainly not Achim Laneshek, who are considered to be among the, the most effective leaders of the protest movement. No, they are not saying that. They're saying, let's sit down and have some real discussions, okay. but not with a gun to our head. And that's what groups like Achim Laneshek, Brothers in Arms, and many of what I consider to be the more responsible protest organizers are saying, it's just, you know what? This whole judicial reform thing opened up a real can of worms. Yeah, it did. And it did. And it's probably, it could be in the end a blessing yeah. if it's dealt with responsibly. And to date, I do not see this government dealing with it responsibly. Let me throw it when that, I think, I think that... Well, they only hit the pause button a week ago, so let's give it a chance. Well, they hit, i totally with you. I just wish they hadn't come out four of the main ministers in the government a day after, including Netanyahu, and said, we'll pause, we'll talk, but we're going ahead on May 1st. Okay? Like, talk about a forked tongue. 
Let me ask you this. I've spent a lot of time talking to what I consider to be the more extremist members of the coalition government. They will very openly say, as I know Haredi will as well, the ultra-Orthodox, that they actually, on their issue matrix, value halakhic law, Jewish law, much more so than liberal democracy. Yeah. They simply are not committed to liberal democracy in the way you or I might be. Yeah. And the fact is, the majority of your coalition partners in this government are of that view. They don't really care about liberal democracy. Yeah. So here you are saying, on the one hand, well, come on, people are exaggerating. They're saying this is, the, this is going to be dictatorship. This is the end of democracy. And I'm looking at how your government is constituted and what key ministers say and believe. Yeah, but who's the biggest party? The Likud party is a liberal party. And this is, by the way, a bit How do you a get built in bed check. with those people. Because there was no choice. Did you want to go to another election? Yes. Really? Preferably. A sixth election? Yes. That was also going to end up in no result. Again, there is this whole cancelling of the will of the majority of the people. What do you think? That Netanyahu wouldn't have wanted a wider coalition. He always, that's always what he prefers. He always wants to be in the middle of the two sides. Yes, he does. But now he's not. And I'm looking at the coalition partners, and they are, in my view, anti-democratic. They don't care about democracy. There's two things about one being anti-democratic, one being a liberal democracy. Liberal on church and state matters, they're not. Okay? Some of them are liberal economically. They all believe in democracy because that's how they got to power. I don't think any of them want to cancel and create a dictatorship unless they've never stated that, and I don't think there's any reason for us to believe that. It's democracy that have gotten them their power, and it's democracy that'll keep them in power or not if they don't deliver to their, to their election promises, you know? And so I have no reason to believe that they, first of all, they don't have the numbers, they never will, and the Likud is a liberal party. Most of the people in Likud are secular, liberal Democrats who believe in many different things, Many great people who've done many good things for the country. So, I think that to put everybody in this box is a little bit of, you know, what we're seeing in the world is kind of everybody taking an extreme position, whatever side you're in. And I think that the delegitimization of the right is a real problem as well. I don't agree on delegitimizing any part of the democratic mosaic, but don't delegitimize the right wing and don't. You know, don't consider the people who voted for them somehow stupid or illegitimate. Never said that. Or, you know, or provincial or, 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 or backwards. There is that tendency. So, well, so to me, this is not a right-left issue. To me, this is much more of a sound government, responsible government, and healthy democracy. That's how I see it. And if I look at who's running the show now, and whether or not they value liberal democracy, and I've asked them straight up, and they say no. That bothers me. It does. And I'm not an anarchist. I'm not a leftist. I'm not a traitor. Absolutely. I'm none of those things. Absolutely. So this, so the overly simplistic demonization and canceling kind of works on both sides. I, that's what I said. And I accept that most in Likud are reasonable, are moderate. It's always been a big tent. I've written that over and over. We're just not hearing from them now. And you and I both know 
that there is a kind of culture at the moment in the Likud party that is not encouraging dissenting views from being voiced? Well, I, I think that one of the reasons why the pause button was hit, I mean, I don't agree with you, is because within the Likud... There's they, tremendous dissent. Yes, absolutely. Floor. I have a feeling that if you and I could sit down and, you know, be dictators for a day. Oh, that would be great. Wouldn't it be fun? And I think we'd get a lot done. I think we have to look at our history. We've had a lot of division and conflict, but somehow we've always made it through. And I believe that this actually could be a moment that brings us to another level, maybe a new social contract, maybe even a point of unity. We've been to really difficult situations in the past, and we've gotten through it stronger. I'm a believer of the Jewish people. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you come from. I embrace everybody. And so I hope that this is a moment that maybe we can discuss a constitution. Maybe we could work towards a real constitution, a real new social contract. And things are never as they seem all the time. Well, that's you know, we're going to end on that note of mystery. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. And insights. Always a pleasure talking to you. You too. Since I recorded this interview with Fleur Hassan last week, there has been one really important development with respect to the substance of the judicial reform bills. Minister of Justice Yariv Levine made comments several weeks ago on a television channel known for being extremely supportive of the Netanyahu government that came to light in recent days. In an interview, Levine conceded that some of the proposed laws, in particular the one dealing with judicial appointments, may have crossed a line and not have been appropriate for a democratic country. Most peculiar, in my opinion, is that a man who has, by all accounts, been obsessed with judicial reform for two decades, who has spent the last three months relentlessly promoting his particularly aggressive version of such reform, who has had the benefit of consulting with his preferred policy experts at the Kohelet Forum and elsewhere, who has watched dispassionately as the country is torn apart by opposition to his proposals, that now, suddenly, he has this epiphany? I cannot help but question the underlying motive to him coming out and saying this now. But, as I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, the proposed appointment process isn't what scares me most. It's all the other parts of the legislation. Perhaps Levine figures that if he bends a little on this issue, judicial appointments, which won't really matter much in the end, that he can preserve the remaining laws that are truly undemocratic those that eviscerate the court and the override clause. There really never is a dull moment here. It will be interesting to see how the government positions and spins judicial overhaul when they return for the next legislative session beginning in early May, in light of the zigzagging by Minister Levine. In the meantime, I expect that you have been keeping up with the news in Israel. Recent weeks have been extremely tense, with numerous terror attacks on Israelis, Hamas rockets and mortars shot at Israel from the Gaza Strip and Lebanon, and ongoing challenges on the Temple Mount and in and around Al-Aqsa Mosque, not to mention the ongoing tension that permeates the West Bank. I'll be writing about all of that in the coming days. 
I had really hoped to have been able to lighten things up a bit over the holiday period, but, alas, events conspire against my best intentions. It is what it is. I'll leave you, however, with a spot of good news. Prime Minister Netanyahu's impulsive firing of his Minister of Defense over a week ago turns out to have been a lot of fuss for naught. He never did sign the formal termination letter, which left Gallant and the country twisting in the wind for a few days. But Netanyahu finally conceded that Gallant would remain in his portfolio after all. That's a good thing, in light of the rockets and instability everywhere, domestically, on the West Bank, and now on the Gaza and Northern Fronts. Nevertheless, when he convened the military command for a pre-Passover photo op, where all he had to do was smile, Benjamin Netanyahu could not help himself. He remained stiff and stern while the cameras were present, couldn't bring himself to even glance at Gallant seated beside him. And once the media left the room, he apparently launched into an extended tirade about how the military command was not doing its job. He reportedly even mentioned France, where there have been wild riots in recent weeks due to the government's plan to extend retirement by two years. The French army has not resisted doing its duty, Netanyahu upbraided his central command, so why are you tolerating such dissent? What the Prime Minister, regrettably, seems not to understand is that a soft judicial coup is really in another league from tweaking a retirement age. Thanks for tuning in, as always. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me, I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.